food that nature creates is what our bodies understand, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more we get to food the way it comes in nature, whole foods or plant-based or whatever language you want to use, um, the more our bodies know what to do with it and the more nourished we are in that really fundamental way. And honestly, I feel like that's about as simple as it gets. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dachis-Marmette. We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, Appetite for Change. Appetite for Change is a nonprofit in North Minneapolis that uses food as a tool for health, wealth, and social change. This year, in light of COVID and the unrest in Minneapolis, Appetite for Change has continued to ground themselves in their mission and center their work around community connection and nourishing food. They launched a pilot program called Community Cooks Meal Boxes, which provides fresh produce and pantry items, plus two recipes for over 300 families at no cost to the family. The program has been such a success that it has been extended for another six weeks and will continue into 2021. AFC has utilized the kitchens of their two restaurants, Breaking Bread Cafe and Station 81, to produce over 200,000 meals that have been distributed across the Twin Cities to healthcare workers, seniors, and families in need. In addition, they have seven farm plots across North Minneapolis that are tended to by community members and Appetite for Change youth learning how to grow a variety of plants. These fresh fruits and vegetables are distributed throughout the North Side. Even in 2021, Appetite for Change is committed to building a more equitable food system by delivering fresh and nourishing food to healthcare workers, seniors, and families in need, tending urban gardens and more. We have been collaborating with Appetite for Change over this past year, and we have loved their dedication to their mission, and we so look forward to volunteering with their organization and working with them more in 2021. To learn more about Appetite for Change, listen to episode 31 of our podcast with one of their founders, Michelle Horowitz. For more information or to donate, head on over to appetiteforchangemn.org backslash impact or on Instagram and Facebook at Appetite for Change. Hello, and welcome to episode 62 of the Art of Living Well podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, we would want to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, if you would take just two minutes to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps us reach more people so others can benefit from the inspiring information that we share. We would also love it if you would share this episode with friends or family or anyone that you think may benefit from it and tag us on social media. Thank you. We want to welcome today's guest, Jenny Breen. 
Jenny has been a professional chef and advocate for local and sustainably raised foods, and she has been working directly with farmers and producers in the Twin Cities area since the mid-1980s. Jenny was the co-owner of Good Life Cafe and Catering, a sustainable and whole foods business from 1996 to 2013. She is a 2009 Archibald Bush Foundation Leadership Fellow, and she completed her Master's in Public Health and Nutrition at the University of Minnesota in 2011, while working to build networks within health and food systems to create greater access to food, support for sustainable farming, and to utilize cooking as a health strategy. Her first cookbook, Cooking Up the Good Life, was released in April of 2011 from the University of Minnesota Press. She currently teaches three courses at the University of Minnesota through the Bakken Center for Spirituality and Healing and the College of Food and Agriculture. She is also a food and nutrition public health educator, and she delivers culinary nutrition training to local health departments, school districts, nonprofit food and farming organizations, and regular community folks. We had such a great conversation with Jenny, and we had so much in common with her, and we loved talking with her about how food and cooking have the power to transform personal, community, and environmental health. And with that, let's dive right into our conversation with Jenny Breen. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Art of Living Well podcast today. I got your name from my aunt who um, met you through the East Isles Farmer's Market. And after chatting with you a little bit, I also discovered that your husband was both of my kids' Spanish teacher, which is so funny. It's such a small world. Um, but anyway, it's so fun to connect with like-minded people in the health and wellness space. And to start out, we would love to hear you share your story and your journey and how you went from a cafe, a cafe owner to getting a master's in public health to writing a cookbook and ultimately creating your own business, transforming the table. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. And um, yeah, it is funny sometimes how small Minneapolis world can be and all the overlaps, but um, there is also some reason that those things happen, I think. So my journey, I love that question. And it's a question I like to ask too. I think everybody has a food story uh, and it's always really important, I think, to under, especially if you work in the health space at all, to understand what that story is. Man, it could be a really long story. I'll try and keep it short. I think about, uh, I spent a year living in Israel at my junior year of college. I lived on a kibbutz and worked in the um, almond fields and the avocado fields. And I was there for what I thought was one reason, but what really ended up happening was this sort of aha moment for me around my own physical and emotional health and how that, what that had to do with um, this country and the way that people were living in ways that when I returned looked like excessive consumption, excessive mindless consumption. <laughs> and a really a lack of awareness of their own health or really anybody else's. It just seemed very confusing to me. And I t spent a long time trying to figure out what that had to do with me and what that would mean for me in terms of graduating from college and figuring out a career. 
I didn't really know, but somehow it became about food for me. And the first thing I did when I graduated from college was started working in um, restaurants. And I had worked in them. I'd waited tables in, you know, just to make money over the summer, but I wanted to get in the kitchen. I wanted to start cooking, but I also really learned fairly quickly that I wanted to know more about where the food I was working with was coming from and that I wanted it to be healthy. And I realized that a lot of people, a lot of the people who were teaching me in the restaurant industry weren't necessarily thinking about those things. Uh, I did spend a long stretch at the Seward Cafe, which is a little hippie collective restaurant in South Minneapolis. And they were buying food directly from farmers and using local seasonal food, not because it was a trend, but because it was the right thing to do from the perspective of everyone there. And it was so eye-opening to me to kind of realize like, oh, there is I didn't know the language at the time. There is a food system. There is a way that food gets from the farm to us. And there's people in in that story. And, you know, there's livelihoods and there's also health. And so it was really a lot of a personal journey for me. And once I found that and also experienced physically what happened when I really started changing my diet, uh, I couldn't go back. And I couldn't also really stop wanting to have that conversation with people. (laughs) I was, you know, I felt like I've discovered this incredible thing. Everybody should know about this. You know, it matters what you eat and it matters how you live. And um, it was, it took me a long time to navigate that. But I also um, had a good friend who was working at the time in the food industry as a front of the house person for Kim Bartman. And we started saying, what would happen if we just started a small food business out of, we were living together. What would happen if we just started doing this out of our house? We could just start catering. We know what we're doing. So we just started, we put an ad in, I think it was Minnesota Monthly Magazine. And we just started being caterers. (laughs) And it was kind of fine. I mean, we each had other jobs and we were just kind of, you know, making it up as we went. And for some reason, we decided to take a small business class in which we wrote a business plan. And our business plan was for opening a restaurant. And part of the class required us to go to banks to see if they would actually lend us money for our business. And we went to two banks and they both said, yes, we'll give you a small business loan. (laughs) We, We were like, oh. We were just completely not expecting that. We found a small site. They said, yes, we'll invest in you. And in 1996, in December, we were opening a small cafe. So it was was kind of unintentional or unexpected, but it was also really, you know, in 1996, the food scene was really different and we could kind of make things up as we went. We also knew we were really committed to buying from local farmers, farmers that we had both met in our work and that we wanted to have a menu that was seasonal and that was plant forward. In fact, it was a vegetarian restaurant that we opened. So we didn't even have any meat on the menu. And we just, we just did it. We just sort of went and we put a menu together and we built this sweet little 
cafe and we went to thrift stores and bought really cute aprons and silverware and tablecloths and dishes. And we opened a restaurant in 1996. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's very progressive what you were doing. That was what, 24 years ago. Yeah, it, it was. And it was, it was totally what is really trendy and what everybody wants now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't then a trend. It was just something that made total sense to us. And we couldn't really figure out why we would do it any other way. We, you know, why would we not buy directly from farmers? And why would we not buy squash and squash season and spinach and spinach season, you know? So, um, and it was also a really really profound experience for me because I had to, I had to write the menu every week. I had to come up with recipes for whatever it was that we were getting every week. And then I had to teach other people how to do it. So I had to learn how to write stuff, write recipes down and make them, you know, consistent and, and something that somebody else could do. So that was also just a really huge challenge, but like this growth opportunity for me. Um, and that's where, you know, the majority of the recipes that ended up in my cookbook, that's where they started because it was also a, t- a opportunity to test every recipe that I wrote, you know? So can you talk a little bit about, so I guess that was the cafe before that we dive cafe, into right. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Maybe fast forward just a little bit to sure. getting this degree in public health. Yeah. Now, you know, your, your current business transforming the table. Yeah. Um, so it's immediately, as soon as we opened the restaurant, I also started just teaching in the food co-ops or wherever I could just sort of offering um, classes because we were trying to promote the cafe. And I had this really quickly sort of this realization like, oh my God, people don't actually know anything about where their food comes from or what it has to do with their health. It was just this, oh, and, and I guess I didn't realize, I mean, I, a lot of what I knew was intuitive. I didn't realize that at the time. I think I thought it was just obvious. Um, and so I, I really quickly realized, oh, there's this big gap between what people understand about food and what they understand about their health. And I felt like I had a lot of tools to make those connections. I'm, you know, I'm a fairly capable teacher and um, I thought I knew a lot about nutrition, but I didn't have any formal training and I didn't have any credentials that would give me kind of the, the entree into a lot of the spaces that I thought I wanted to be in. So uh, after five years of the restaurant, well, in, the, in there, both my partner and I got married and we both started having babies. So that happened in that space too, which was also not very compatible with running a restaurant. Um, but I decided that I really wanted to do, to get that formal training and that, that sort of credentials that would get me in the rooms that I wanted to be in. And it, it became clear that public health nutrition was a pretty good direction for me. I was interested in policy and kind of what was going on at that level, but I was also really interested in education. And so fortunately, I applied for a Bush fellowship and received it in 2009. And that's when I went to um, the School of Public Health and got my MPH in nutrition. And also when I wrote my cookbook. So those two things happened simultaneously. 
So let's dive in a little bit, given all that you just shared of your journey, which is amazing. I love hearing all this. Um, let's talk a little bit about how food and cooking really have the power to transform, you know, personal and community and environmental health and dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, it, it, it's funny because when I went to get my MPH, uh, although it was in nutrition, there was very little discussion about food. And I, I would, and I was also a much older student than every other student there. I was old enough literally to be their mom. Um, and I just kept saying like, when are we going to start talking about food? Like, you know, we're talking about people and we're talking about health and we're talking about behavior change, but when are we going to start talking about food, <laughs> you know? And because that's ultimately what, what the connection is, that's where it all comes together. Um, and so I ended up just kind of having to guide myself around whatever research was out there, which was very little. And to say, look, I think cooking is a public health strategy. And I think we should be talking about this. And I think we should be teaching people. You guys are sending all these dietitians out into the world who don't know how to cook, you know, mm -hmm. so true. So it was, it, it made me crazy. And I was look, I was, again, I was a mom at the time and I was looking at all these young, I think they were all women in my class who really knew nothing about any of this stuff. They didn't know about food systems. They didn't know about sustainable agriculture. They didn't know about, you know, food as medicine in any real applicable way. Um, and I just, I found it really shocking. So for me, that was what became the focus of everything that I did in grad school. And as an older student and as somebody who um, I didn't just apply to grad school because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, you know, I applied because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I didn't really wait for my professors to kind of tell me, oh, you should do this internship or you should go, you know, do this research. I said, look, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to do my internship. This is who I want to be my supervisor. And I just kind of mapped it out for myself. And what that did is it allowed me to be in, you know, the policy conversation when the local food policy council was getting created. Um, it allowed me to be meeting with and talking with school food service people who were um, just starting to think about scratch cooking or, you know, or how to change the food that they were serving. So I used this sort of public health credential to say, actually, what we need to do is we need to learn how to cook. You need to learn how to cook or you need to use cooking to introduce a or B or C person to healthy foods and healthy lifestyle. But so, also we need to, so I'll just add, we need to, we need to start with that food story, which is what I was talking about at the very beginning. We can't also can't have this sort of blanket idea that every person requires the same exact answer when it comes to food and health. So I was really about let's engage people where they're at, where they're coming from and figure out, you know, where food fits into their story. Well, and I'm wondering how does being in a relationship with food actually tie to your wellness specifically? Really, really great question. Um, so, I mean, there's the physiology of it and then there's the sort of emotional piece of it. Um, and obviously, and 
you all know this, but you know, the physiology is that food that nature creates is what our bodies understand, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more we get to food the way it comes in nature, whole foods or plant-based or whatever language you wanna use, um, the more our bodies know what to do with it and the more nourished we are. Uh, so in that really fundamental way, and honestly, I feel like that's about as simple as it gets. And I, one mm -hmm. of the things that I believe is that we make it so complicated. Public health makes it complicated. Nutritionists make it complicated and people don't understand. Well, they're and confused. So, there's so much information out there. There's so much information and there's so many people kind of packaging it. And I kind of almost see myself as a translator to say, actually, no, it's not rocket science at all. It's super simple. Um, just eat food the way it comes, you know? Exactly. Um, so uh, along those lines, like how do we empower people to make those, you know, changes so that they can create these simple meals in their kitchen and have right. the tools and the skills that they need? Right. So we start with this basic information, which is you really, you and your body already know what is good for you, right? you may be overwhelmed and confused. There's a lot of messages out there. So let's like, let's clear that space. Let's get rid of all that stuff and get back to the basics. And then yes, that's where the cooking comes in for me. So here's some basic frameworks and basic formulas. Here's what whole foods are and look like. And here's a bunch of really easy, simple things that you can do with them. I talk a lot about, um, so a lot of people think, oh, well, healthy eating is really expensive. It's really inaccessible, you know, organic food, which is true, is more expensive. And I kind of back up a little bit and I say, all right, let's just start with like real food and whole food. Let's not worry about anything else. A lot of people, as I said, come with their own knowledge. If you ask somebody their food story, it's not unlikely, especially in Minnesota, they grew up on a farm or they have some, you know, grandparent that taught them how to cook this and that and the other thing, or they have some traditional family recipes or heritage. So I like to tap into people's own knowledge and experience too, and then kind of draw it out and say, look, that's not that different than this, or it's actually the same. It's just that, you know, you haven't gone and found those ingredients lately. Um, so I think a lot of it is reminding people of their own abilities. And, you know, that's another thing that I struggle with both in, in academia in general, but also just in the, the culinary culture that we have is that people think, oh, I don't know how to cook because they either watch it on TV and they see some really elaborate fancy thing, or even the chefs, at least in this town are put on pedestals and seen as kind of these heroes which I mean, that's, that's nice, but celebrities, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. celebrities, they're just regular people. And honestly, a lot of them don't know that much about health and they're not so particularly true. healthy. That's very <laughs> true. Very true. And so that was actually one of the questions we wanted to ask you is, you know, Marty and I know from working with people and a lot of moms and a lot of women that they're challenged when it comes to cooking. So cooking's intimidating because of all the things we just talked about and what people see. And then they look on social media and these like, beautifully curated feeds with all these pretty pictures. 
Um, and it's intimidating and there, it takes time or some people think it takes more time than it, you know, than it maybe it could. So what advice do you have? Just like practical advice for the novice chef um, and for the busy parent to starting yeah. some whole food cooking into their lives. Such a great question. So there's a few different approaches that I have, you know, one is like in just like a purely culinary, like cooking approach, come up with three basic formulas and three basic sauces that you love and can do and just have those on hand. So when you cook us or when you make a sauce, make a huge amount of it and have it so that you can use it. I, I just did. I have a couple of favorite sauces that I teach people. And then I say, put it on roasted vegetables, put it on chicken, put it on fish, put it, you know, scramble it with your stir fry. I mean, so, so don't just cook once whenever you cook cook for a bunch of times. Again, you know, when I cook beans, I don't cook beans for one meal. I cook a pot of beans and then I make a chili and then I make rice and beans or burritos or enchiladas. And then I scramble them with my eggs and then I put them in my salad, you know? So then I've eaten four times and cooked once and certainly with kids and with families and my kids are older now, but, um, but you know, you have to do that. You have to have stuff on hand so that you can pull together a meal without having to spend an hour and a half figuring it out. So I always keep a pot of grains and a pot, usually some kind of beans or legumes or protein in bulk kind of, so that I can, I, and then I usually have one or two different kinds of sauces, some kind of a pesto I often will have, and I'll have that in the freezer if I don't have it in the fridge. I'll have another kind of a sauce that I will use maybe for more like a stir fry. Um, and then I almost always have salad dressing that I make. That's the first thing that I teach anybody ever is a salad dressing because you can take that formula and extrapolate it out to 20 different sauces. Mm -hmm. okay. So, so again, like cook smart, not cook smarter, not harder, of course. Um, have a, a, an element of a plan. Another thing I tell people a lot is that, you know, it, you can, you're going to have to spend the time so you can spend it on the front end and then sort of have the plan, or you can spend it on the back end, kind of constantly scrambling for and, and catching up. And the same thing is honestly true with the money. Um, I often will say you can spend it now or you can spend it later, but you're going to spend it. And so you can either spend it now on the sort of the ingredients and building your pantry, or you can spend it later on all of the health problems that you're going to have because you sacrificed convenience for, you know, for quality. Yeah. And even in the short term, what happens when you don't have something to eat? You go out to eat and you're right. spending just as much Double. money, even in the short right. usually more, right? And not saving time. That's another thing. The, the time thing is what I hear from people more than anything. Mm -hmm. And I push back hard on that for a few reasons. One, right? If you're going to run out and get food, it ultimately doesn't save you a ton of time. Um, but two, uh, so when I did my research back in 2009, I wrote a lot about family meals. And one of the things that I looked at was how much time people spent, and this was 12 years ago, how much time people spent on screens. So it was mostly television at that point. 
Any guesses <laughs> on a daily basis? I mean, oh, I see the numbers hours. for social media, so I know it's multiple hours, four multiple to six hours. hours. Exactly. Yeah. So when people say, I don't have time, you know, I would just be like, you know, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Like, what are well, you doing with all that time? And, and also, what about the people that say they don't like to cook? Yeah. Well, I, I hear that. I, you know, then I, I think what we, you kind of have to just go, okay, how can we make it simple and not stressful for you? Mm -hmm. um, the what, that's what I hear a lot. Yeah. Yeah. They don't. And I, it's interesting. Like I'd like maybe sometimes try and get underneath that. Like, why don't you like to cook? What is it? Is it stressful because your kids don't like what you're feeding them? And then there's a battle every day. Is it stressful because uh, it's expensive? Is it stressful because you feel like you don't know what to do? So empowering people with some of these tools and these ideas and skills so that they do feel like they know what to do. Um, I always tell my students, I teach at the university, so I have a semester long cooking class. And I always tell them at the beginning, look, I'm not trying to turn you into chefs. That is not my goal. My goal is to make it possible, both in terms of what you have available, but also in terms of your confidence so that when you walk into your kitchen, you can look at what's there and figure out four or five different possible meals that will be delicious, easy, and satisfying. Yeah, That's what I want. Well, you're teaching them a life skill. Absolutely. I wish I would have went to that class. Like I would yeah. love to take that class right now because I, I love cooking now. Um, yeah. But it is intimidating for people. So I think that's a great a great service you're providing. It is intimidating. And then, you know, I, I do another, I teach another class for health professional students. So these are folks who are in one way or another going to be doing, you know, patient care. And we have them um, do this thing we call the food mood journal, right? Mm -hmm. So they just are, it's not about calories or whatever. It's about like, what are you doing and what's your mood and how satisfied are you when you eat? And they, almost everyone has these aha moments of like, wow, I've never really paid attention to like how, what I'm doing or what I'm eating makes me feel. It's just like, wow. Yeah. That's, those are pretty connected, those things. And mm -hmm. one thing that I think is really cool if you have enough time with someone is that if they do change their eating, they start to feel different. And once they start feeling like, oh, I didn't even realize I didn't feel good. Now I feel so good. I don't ever want to feel like that again. And so that's an, another motivator, I think, is like, oh, I can feel this way just by eating this way. And that's pretty, pretty motivating. But you have to, you know, you got to get there. It's powerful and it takes time. I think Stephanie and I both work with clients on that and see that we yeah, really see that change in people. And it's really nice to see someone make that connection and start to feel better. And then when they go back to something, you know, maybe they don't feel right. as well. And so then they're again, motivated to kind of stay on the path of eating more whole foods. Yeah. And I think it, it's empowering, right? Yeah, like they, they, and, and we all do it. I mean, I say to people, look, I, I love my treats. I love, like, I'm not a purist. I would never, ever imply that I think people should be perfect. Cause I, I just think that's not even fun. Right. 
<laughs> but but then you you know it becomes a choice that you're making and i feel like when people realize they have control and confuse mm-hmm. um then all of a sudden there's this really different feeling around it well and i think too one one thing it would be great for the listeners to understand is it, this doesn't take a lot of time someone can make a few small tweaks to their diet or their lifestyle and within a week they're feeling better this doesn't require like a six month you know, process that's intimidating. That's so true. I was just, I was talking about um, something about diets and health with my students yesterday. And I have a student who works in the, um, like a blood donation center. And she said, uh, when people have eaten like fast food the day before they come in to donate blood, it won't go through the tube. It's so like, so congealed. Oh my gosh. I've never heard that. I know I was fascinated. I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Like that's really clear, straightforward (laughs) information right there. Yeah. I thought that was really fascinating. And now we want to take a quick break from today's conversation to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Lakewinds co-op, which is a favorite grocery store of ours to shop at in the twin cities. We love that Lakewinds has such high standards and vets every single product on their shelves, including their amazing personal care and supplement section so that we don't have to. As busy parents, we don't always have the time or the desire to read every ingredient label. And we, when we shop at Lakewinds, we have confidence that it's been done for us. Grocery shopping should be an enjoyable and calm experience and Lakewinds does everything to make your experience stress-free from the moment you walk in the door. The decor and aesthetics are really calming and inviting, and we have never met such knowledgeable and friendly staff in all the departments, including meat and seafood, in the wellness department, and produce. We love Lakewind's produce section, which focuses on organic and fair trade products. About 95% of the produce is organic and local as much as possible, and they really support the local and small sustainable farmers right here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. The meat buyers actually visit the farms. They talk to the ranchers and see their practices to ensure that the animals are ethically raised and treated, which is really important to us. All of their meat is free from additives, synthetic preservatives, nitrates, antibiotic residues, steroids, and added growth hormones. Unlike many traditional grocery stores, Lakewinds has a banned ingredient list that is used to vet the products on their shelf, which includes artificial flavors, colors, preservatives, high fructose corn syrup, hydrogenated oil, et cetera. This applies to the food on their shelves as well as the supplements and beauty and personal care products in their wellness department. If an item doesn't meet the product standards, Lakewinds doesn't allow it on their store. And we love that peace of mind. We also love how they seek out local small batch makers who meet their standards and really try to support our local businesses. We all know that maintaining a healthy body and mind has huge implications on our immune systems and being able to fight off the flu. So support your health and wellness in the new year by shopping at your local co-op. You can find the fabulous Lakewinds co-ops in Minnetonka, Chanhassen, and Richfield, or have groceries delivered from Instacart. While Lakewinds co-op is a member-owned store, you don't have to be a member to shop and receive their weekly specials. Although we highly recommend that you do become members like us for additional monthly savings and an annual dividend. You can find out more by going to lakewinds.coop 
And when you're there, be sure to check out their delicious recipes. And if you don't live in the Twin Cities, we highly encourage you to find your local co-op by heading over to National Co-op Grocers and finding one near you. Changing gears a little bit, I'm wondering if we can talk about food waste. Uh And I'm wondering how you advise people to kind of get a better idea um, of how much fresh food is wasted on a regular basis. I know I sometimes fall prey to that where I'll go to the grocery store and buy a ton of fresh veggies and fruits. And I have every intention and I even meal plan and everything. And still I end up throwing things out because they go bad or whatever. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, So yeah, 40% of the food that's produced in this country gets wasted. That's a staggering, staggering number. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think that that planning and that bulk cooking does help a lot. I I think also building our pantries is really smart because then we don't feel like we have to go shopping every time we're going to cook. We can kind of say, oh, I've got, I know I've got something at home that I can pull out there. I love fresh food too. And so I like to make sure I have fresh food. One thing that I've been um, trying to teach more is just um, ways of preserving and freezing food. If you, if you realize, oh my God, there's no way I'm actually going to get to this. Most things you can literally stick in the freezer and use it later. Um, I definitely, you know, if you can blanch stuff first, that really helps in terms of the texture and the nutrients when you, when you use it. But I sometimes will just take tomatoes and literally put them in a bag in the freezer. Cause I just don't have time to deal with them. And then later on, they just turn into a sauce or soup. Yeah. Um, so that's something, if you have a little more time and energy, you know, fermentation, pickling, that's a really fun thing to do. I always teach that in my class just because it really is pretty fast and it's kind of thing where it's like, well, I can still have this stuff in six months and, you know, it's a little bit of a taste of the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, But also that I do think that planning and kind of having, having a few things in your back pocket, again, like I, when I have those sauces in the fridge and this is something my husband has, has gotten kind of taken, uh, you know, started doing too. If I have that sauce sitting there, then whatever I have, I can stir fry or roast, you know, and I don't have to have any more of a plan than that. I can just be like, oh, okay, I've got that sauce. Just going to throw these veggies in the oven and I'm ready. Yeah. So, or if I've got that pot of rice that's already cooked, you know, then I can, uh, I can make a stir fry. I've got the rice, I've got the sauce. So, um, as much as you can kind of have those few things that are just consistently there and a, a solid pantry where you don't have, I mean, I literally, I teach people about planning and I very, I do very little planning, but that's because I know what I have on hand all the time. And for me, it's just a matter of plugging in the, the variables, right? Okay. Yeah. I've got this protein or this chicken that needs to get used, or I've got that broccoli and those sweet potatoes. I have to use them. And then I just kind of plug them in. Yeah. So one other going question and something that I've been trying to focus on is in addition to like using up what's in your fridge with your produce, throwing away like parts of the vegetables that you actually just don't use. So a lot of people, I've been listening to people talk about this and there's some people out there that have created cookbooks that they didn't waste any food parts when they made this cookbook. Um, So I've even been, 
I'd love your thoughts on this. Like the broccoli, like you only use the head of the broccoli. So what about the whole stock? So I started like trimming the outside, cutting up in pieces, and then I'll use it for like a chicken stock if I'm going to make a vegetable or a chicken stock. But I love any thoughts you have on not throwing away part of what you're are eating. I love that question. And I just did that yesterday. I took the cauliflower and I cut everything up, including all the green leaves out and I roasted them all. And it was like, yeah. And the like, I don't know what it's called, but just the stem. I probably cut the very, very end of the stem, but yeah, if you cut it up, it will, you know, it's not that different than like a root vegetable. Um, so same thing with broccoli. Now, broccoli, I've always used the stems. I love to tell this story. When my kids were little, I would I would cut up the stems and steam them and just put them in a little container. Like, you know how you do that with apples or Cheerios? Yeah, yeah. My kids had broccoli stems and they would just nibble on those because they're kind of sweet and crunchy, just like an yeah. apple and super nutritious. I also have started using all my broccoli leaves because why not? Why do we, why have we ever thrown those away? I mean, it's like, we just thought we needed to, right? Right. Who taught us these things? You know, even (laughs) when I cook fennel, you know, I feel like I'm cutting off the green of the fennel and and just using the bulb. And I'm sure you could probably do something with that. Or like the celery leaves. The celery leaves are some of the tastiest parts of the celery. So somewhere we all learned that you just get rid of all that stuff and you use the pretty Mm -hmm. part in the middle or something. Um, Yeah. And I don't know, again, if that's like food companies, you know, kind of getting more money for less or just, you know, I mean, we do have a problem in, in our markets, right. Where if something isn't perfect, people don't want to buy it. So there is, there is definitely uh, a cultural sort of thinking around this that we do have to change. I know, you know, people like Dan Barber um, who, runs Blue Hill Restaurant and Stone Barns Farm in New York City. He's really like, this is like a high-end restaurant that has a three-month waiting list. He wrote a book called The Third Plate in which he, his- That book, someone told me to buy it and I just haven't read it. It's on, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, on my nightstand. it's a little bit heady, but yeah. main, mainly what he talks about is, you know, just because like, it's still not sustainable to use grass-fed meat as the main part of the meal every day. That's still not sustainable. Anyway, he started doing these dinners in his restaurant where he was only using the waste. So all the stuff that they normally would throw away was the meal. And people were paying like hundreds of dollars and standing in line to go to this restaurant and have these meals. So you know, and he was using cover crops, like the crops that normally are just in between the crops he was using those for his grains. And so, you know, it's, it's all food. Um, We just do have a weird way of sort of not wanting to use some of the uglier things. Well, if you think about, you started this conversation with 40% of the food produced in the U S is wasted. And then we have all these people that are starving that don't have food. And we think we need to mass produce you know, the soy and the corn and some of these ingredients to feed people, but yet we're throwing away 40% of the food that's produced. Absolutely. It's not, we, we do not have a shortage of food in the world at all. And some of it too, that's interesting that you bring that up because another thing that we've done in our global food system is we've created this situation where people are dependent on food that we high, we produce here 
that's like really highly processed with corn and soy mm-hmm. across the world instead of having the resources to just feed themselves, which they can do if we didn't, you know, there's just this whole sort of dependent relationship that we've created. So, and it really has to do with all these big food businesses making a lot of money off of it. So how do you think people become more informed consumers of food and, you know, try and, I know we want to all try and be more intentional yeah. About the food we're eating. And I think people are confused, right? Yeah, I think so. And it's, you know, it's hard. I mean, who am I to say I'm the one you should believe, right? When I'm teaching. Um, I think it is, you do have to get educated and how to, you know, get people to that step is a good question. I have so many students. I have, I teach a class called Food Choices, Healing the Earth, Healing Ourselves. It's a, it's a three credit class I teach every semester. It fills up every semester. And I have so many students who really, really wanna do the right thing, who have no idea about what's going on in any of the things I'm teaching them about, you know, the food industry and about food waste and about inequities in the food system. And they are shocked. They've never mm-hmm. known about any of these things. And, and then there's a point, a lot of them get to halfway through the semester where they're like, but what should I do? This is overwhelming. Right. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I teach them is like every individual action matters. And so if you start with yourself and you make choices that you know are better choices for whatever it is, for the environment or for that, that worker who gets paid less than minimum wage or you know, for your own health or your family's health. If you start there, that's, that's the beginning that can reverberate out. And then you can start talking to other people about why you've made that choice. You know, what I've come, I've definitely come to learn that pointing your finger and saying, you should do this is not a particularly effective way to do anything or to get anything done. Um, we, you all, you have teenagers, you know, you know how well that works, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but if I say, well, this is why I'm doing this. Cause I care about these things. And I've come to learn that these choices make a difference. Um, at least you'll get an, you'll get an ear, you know, ultimately it's up to each individual to make those choices. But then as more and more individuals make those choices, then you can start really seeing impact. And I think, I think you do have to be able to show where impact has been made so that people can feel hopeful and, and there has, you know, there is impact and there has been impact, um, but it's a, it's a big complicated system. And so people have to somehow seek out that information. And that's the part that is a tough thing, you know, especially if you're somebody who's barely managing to, you know, pay the bills and feed your family, then it's like, why am I going to, you know, take a class about food waste? But I also really believe, I know that all of these things are connected, right? Like you made that connection, right? We have all this wasted food and we have hungry people. How does that make sense? Um, Or we have people getting cheap food that they think is really cheap, but on the backs of people who aren't making enough money to feed their families. So, you know, I don't think anyone intentionally wants 
to damage somebody else's situation or to make somebody else go hungry. But I don't think people realize that their choices make that difference. Which I think why sharing your story and your why is so important. And so if all of us collectively are doing that with even just one or two people, right? it's a grassroots movement still a bit, and it will have a ripple impact at some point. It will. And it already has. I mean, I, you know, I think, I mean, sadly, this pandemic has really exposed a lot of these bigger issues. Um, When you look at like food imbalances and access to food, and you also look at the way some people are treated in different jobs in the food industry, like meat packing plants. Um, So, but what that's done is that it's again, sort of awoken people to, oh yeah, things really aren't working that well, or I can't just ignore this. Like my, you know, again, the choices that I make have these impacts. Well, and you can vote with your dollar. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of how I look at a lot of this. So it's one of the few places where we can, right? Like where Mm -hmm. our purchases really do make a difference. Right. And I also think, and I, I tell people this a lot, you're the consumer. So you get to say, whether you do or don't support, you know, you can go into your store and say, tell me where this chicken came from. I want to know how it was raised. And if they can't, you know, answer that, you have a choice as to whether or not you want to spend your money that way. And I personally feel like I'm the consumer. I'm spending the money. I can, I can ask whatever I want. You know, you, you may not know, or you may have an answer that I don't like. That's then I can decide what to do with that. But I think it's, 100% reasonable for consumers to have particular expectations. Absolutely. And that's what you're doing by educating them. So I love it. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the book, the cookbook that you wrote? Yeah. So I did, um, actually, I was teaching classes out at the Arboretum, um, family classes and kids cooking classes. And, uh, some with the university with like continuing education and the woman who was organizing those classes happened to be a writer. And she said, have you ever thought about writing a cookbook? And I was like, well, I mean, yeah, sure. I've thought about it. I don't know. I I don't know how to (laughs) I'd love to. She's like, well, I, I know a little something about, you know, writing books. So what if we work together and, um, Actually, my friend Beth Dooley connected me with an editor at the University of Minnesota Press who publishes a lot of her cookbooks. And we had a great conversation. And one of the things that I really enjoy and I feel is really important is teaching families. So getting kids engaged in the cooking and getting families engaged. I can't, I'm sure you all have seen this too, right? I can't tell you how many parents I had who would say, oh, she won't eat that. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, you know what? Let's cook All it the time. and see what happens. Let's just see. How about we don't set up any expectations? And, you know, sometimes that was true, but probably more often than not, when they were involved and they got to feel like they did something and they were pretty interested in eating it, actually. So I, um, so the premise of the book was really family cooking and the recipes are totally seasonal. It's arranged in seasonal format. And um, they're very whole foods forward. There's probably 10% of the recipes have like chicken or fish in them, but it's almost mostly vegetarian. And 
on almost every recipe, there's also a tip or two about what kids can do to help prepare the meal. So it might just say like, have them take a scissors and cut the cilantro leaves up or, you know, and sometimes it's a little more, you know, like what can you talk about in when you're cooking a fish? Well, you can talk about the process of fishing for an animal and then cooking it and eating it. So some of it's a little bit more philosophical, but um, most of it is just really simple. Like this is how you get kids involved and this is why it matters. And kids can eat this, like we can all enjoy the same meal. It's another thing is that I don't do is say, here's the kid meal and here's the grown up meal. It's just the meal that you make. Absolutely. I say yes. there's no such thing as a kid's menu. Right. 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 And I love that you incorporate tips into the book. And that's actually one of the things we want to ask you about is like we, how we love to leave our listeners with practical tips that they can implement immediately into their lives. Um, So do you have any suggestions or tips that we could share with our listeners? Totally. I just, I, when my kids were little, probably starting at age, I don't know, two, I would just pull their stools up to the table when I was cooking and I would just give them stuff to do. So it doesn't have to be, and yes, it got messy. All right. I will say, prepare yourself. All right. It's not a tidy process. (laughs) I had a friend who was like, I can't believe you bake with your kids. Like it's such a mess. I'm like, yeah, but who cares? You know, then you clean it up. So, um, so starting when they're very young, you know, they can mix things with a spoon. They can certainly anything like herbs. They can tear leaves off of herbs. Um, I do this thing where I pull the, the leaf off of the kale just with my hands. And my kids loved to do that. So when I used to go to farmer's markets and do demonstrations and they would come with me and they would just stand back there and pull the leaves off. (laughs) I thought it was really cool. Um, So, you know, give them things. I, you know, I would, put a stool next to the food processor and they could push the buttons if I was making pesto or something, Um, you know, at a certain age. And I mean, I've cooked with kids, maybe seven, eight, where you give them a paring knife and you just have them cut something. Um, I used butter knives, but honestly, it's pretty frustrating to try and cut with a butter knife, like a potato or a carrot, Um, but a little paring knife, uh, you know, occasionally I have in classes, I've had a kid cut themselves, but it's pretty safe and you, you know, show them safety. Um, so I, and, and baking, I mean, I had, <laughs> had little mini rolling pins and whisks and spoons for each of my kids and they would just sit there and I would put ingredients in and they would mix and, you know, and then pretty soon they started being able to do that themselves. So I, there's no shortage of things that kids can do. They can do whatever they do. Um, I remember, and I, you know, I think what happens partly is that they don't realize that they're just interested in what, you know, they kind of like they've helped and now they kind of want to see what happens with it. And then they kind of want to taste it. I remember my daughter um, ripping lettuce one time and she was like ripping it and putting it in the bowl. And every, every other time she would put it in her mouth and her looking at me and saying, yeah, I don't really like lettuce as she's putting pieces in her mouth. And I was just like, you know, they don't even realize that they're, they're just sort of saying these words, but they don't actually mean it. They've just never either never had it or they heard somebody else say it or somebody told them they didn't like it. So I think what happens is they just develop a 
comfort and a familiarity with food and ingredients and the process of cooking, and they feel some ownership. And that part, you know, if you can say, look what so-and-so made for dinner, you know, there's a lot of pride and a lot of investment. The other thing that it does that is important to me, um, and I think uh, I used, I talk about this, especially when I'm teaching young kids, is nobody gets to say like yuck or gross or I hate this, right? You can say no thank you after you've tasted it or I don't care for it. Um, but when they are feeding their peers, they get a sense of what that feels like. And so suddenly the, the level of respect for the person who's feeding them changes. And that's, especially for parents, that's really, really valuable because, you know, you're going to get tired of your kids complaining or telling you they don't like something day after day. And it's, it's demoralizing. And Absolutely. so, you know, just again, kind of get, building that respect, like this is, you know, this is an important job and I do this every day to feed you and I love you and I want to do that, but you need to respect that. Absolutely. And I think it gives kids, I mean, I'm a firm believer in everything you said. We practice all those things with my kids from a very young age, but it gives them meaning and purpose too. Absolutely. And I, you, they will eat the food when they are part of it. At least they will try it. Yep. We have like a no thank you bite rule, at least when they were younger, my kids, yeah. Um, yeah. with having to try it to say no thank you. Um, and it, it gives them a, a life skill like we talked about earlier. So when, when, when they grow up, you know, they're going to be able to go off to college and, and they'll know how to cook later. Um, right. And, and also just sort of have a, a respect or an appreciation for what it takes, right. To feed yourself or your family, that it isn't just like something that someone over there does for and you. I think, right. And one of the benefits, I mean, I'm out, we're, Marty and I are always talking about silver linings of this pandemic and COVID and stay at home, mm -hmm. but we're all doing more cooking. Our kids are doing more. I mean, we had like, my daughter made gnocchis from scratch from a recipe oh. we had from Italy. We did a family cooking class and she did 85% of it by herself. That's awesome. And, yeah. And it's, it's their pride, you know, it, it builds their confidence um, and the, the pride that they will have by doing this. But I think this is a good opportunity because we're slowing down a bit. We have a little bit more time and our kids are around. They don't have as many activities going on. And we, we can all as parents help them. Right. And I do think, I know for a lot of people that it has been stressful, right? Like, oh my God. And I have been, I've been teaching so much in the last six months because of that, because people are home and they're like, okay, well, I'm here. I got to cook. I give me something. I need something mm -hmm. new. I need some new ideas. Um, but yes, I mean, that's been my experience too, is wow, what a blessing that we are actually sitting around the table so many times <laughs> together that because you know again when you have high schoolers you're you're barely sitting down together and so that was a really that was for us anyway a silver lining and uh -huh. um, it still is right like yeah. for us it is too because things have been slow since right. the pandemic started and right right we've right. had more family dinners together than we've had in years I know it's amazing. And it's, and, and there's the other benefit, right. With the family meal. And this is something that I firmly, firmly believe. I know this to be true, right. Is all of the psychosocial benefits of that as well. Right. Which is what my research was in, in graduate school was mm -hmm. 
how does sitting, and there's been some research actually at the University of Minnesota that shows this relationship between better sort of mental health outcomes and more frequent family meals, right? Because it's connection, it's it's physical nourishment, but it's also this emotional well-being that you need, you get nourished. And sometimes also just the opportunity to let your guard down and just let go, right? Because that's the other thing that happens. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's a great, the family dinner table is, it, it provides so much, you know, nourishment yeah. physically, emotionally, mentally. We can, yeah. we can have a whole nother podcast conversation just about that, right? It's true. And I really believe in it. And I do, I mean, I, the subheading of my cookbook is creative recipes for the family table. And I do feel like the family table is the important part of that because mm-hmm. it is a communal experience. It's a shared experience and that it, we know that that's good for everyone. Yeah. So Jenny, where can people find you or how can they work with you? Thank you. Good question. So that I do have a website. It's transformingthetable.com. Um, and I'm, I'm getting, it's, you know, it's, it's good website. It's not great yet. It's getting better. I have someone helping me kind of put it in order and make it more dynamic. And so anywhere, anytime I have classes, they will be on there. I'm also in the process of probably stepping into that world of a membership where people can sign up and start doing, getting classes and videos and recipes. Mm-hmm. So that's something to hopefully look for in the next several months. Um, yeah. And that's the easiest way to find me. Okay. And we're going to be doing a joint cooking class with you yes. in February, right? On February 9th. And we'll, yeah. we'll send out some details. We'll get yeah. the information out as soon as we have more details on that. Yeah. The other crazy weird benefit of COVID is that when you're teaching virtually, you can have people from everywhere attend your classes. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Well, um, one last question we'd like to ask all our guests is what does the art of living well mean to you? Such a great question. and a great phrase. So, yeah, I honestly, I think um, being listening to your body. So that sort of food mood thing, what, being present with what you, what you need and what you want and finding a way to combine those two things into your daily life. Um, I don't feel like I need a lot of complicated things. I feel like movement and good food and companionship company are really the things that make my life rich. So Appreciating that, recognizing how incredibly lucky and privileged I am to have all those things and um, yeah, just enjoying it. That's beautiful. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I love me too. <laughs> Thank you. Movement, good food and companionship. And companionship. Yes. I mean, that's like, what else does a person need, right? right. Yes. Right. Oh, what a beautiful way to end this amazing conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, 
leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well. Thank you.